Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Joel Evans was the first person in his family to go to college. And while he was working, he was a part-time MBA student. He then switched to full-time status and got his PhD. For 44 years, he was a business professor at Hofstra University. He has a great wife, two adult daughters, and two son-in-laws. And in fact, Joel right now is teaching a class virtually for graduate students in product management. He's a professor emeritus. And I can't wait for you to hear Joel's story. Joel, thank you so much thank for being here. Thank you for having here. me. All right. So I am so excited for you to tell your story because you had a cancer that so few people survive. So take us back to the very beginning of when it started and what type of cancer. Okay. So I had been a type two diabetic for about 20 years before. And I saw my endocrinologist, I have to give him a shout out, Joseph Tarana, because he's the one that saved my life, uh, that uh, in doing my, my quarterly blood work uh, in a January in 2015, he called us at 7.30 in the morning. You kind of get a little nervous when your doctor's calling at 7.30 in the morning. And he said that I want you to go for a CAT scan. I've already got a script sent over and I want you to get it today. So I got the CAT scan. And then he said, I want you to come over to my office after you get a copy of it. So he we went over to his office, my wife, Linda, and myself. And we got there about five o'clock. He had a totally packed office. He had told his staff just to push us in. So we went right in. We were with him for over an hour. I must have apologized to him. 20 times for what I was doing to his patients, but he's the nicest guy in the world. So he, he insisted that we couldn't leave until um, he had lined up a gastro doctor to do the sonar uh, endoscopy, the one that lights up to be able to tell more, and that he was determined that he was going to help me find uh, the best doctor possible to do the surgery. So he, he is really persistent, unbelievable person. So this was a Thursday night. Martin Luther King's birthday was the following Monday. And he had me set up for the endoscopy on Tuesday morning. So unbelievable. Wow. Very so quick. I had it and they, they weren't excited about the results. You know, they thought it could be uh, malignant, but they knew that they wouldn't be able to know for sure until after they did surgery. Can so you I had kind of back up for a second? Sure. So what, yeah, what was it in your blood work, blood work that caused your doctor to have concern? I mean, oh, did okay. he share that with you? Yeah, I'm just yeah, curious. Sure. I, I, I left that out. So he would run a whole variety of uh, blood tests. And the one that he had pinpointed was this thing called Billy Rubin. Oh, yeah. Which until I got the pancreatic cancer, I had, that's another thing. I had absolutely no clue what it was. I just thought it was one of the 8 million tests that he would run. So he didn't like the score on that test. And that's what set the whole thing off. So it was his perceptiveness as an endocrinologist in picking that particular um, 
marker out. And he told me afterwards, because there's a lot of stuff, because he told me that he was convinced from the time I had the CAT scan. There was a lot of stuff he didn't tell me because he didn't want me to get more nervous. So he, but he, he facilitated everything. And so I, I, I took the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the endoscopy and they didn't like the way it looked. So I uh, was referred over to Gene Kappa, who's a doctor in, uh, it's now the Northwell system. And he's actually the chair of the surgery department at the Hostra Northwell Med School, as well as their executive vice president for surgery. So I was really lucky to get him. So uh, we went in to uh, see him and he told me what he was gonna recommend, which was this Whipple surgery. And um, what my uh, endocrinologist had said is, you wanna move on whatever you end up doing as quickly as possible because pancreatic cancer spreads really fast. Whoa, 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 time out. Time out for everyone listening and watching. So at what point did you hear the words cancer? I guess from my endocrinologist, when we went over with the CAT scan, and he said it's possible that it could be pancreatic cancer, but we need to see before we reach any conclusions. What he told me later on was that he was 100% certain. Wow. Because of the the location. So he was certain, but didn't want to say anything until they had actually gone to, gone down, basically looked with the camera. And, all right. So he, he said that, that it might be cancer, even though he knew it was certain. I mean, what was your reaction? What was your wife's reaction? Well, there's a kind of interesting story there too. And that is, um, we believe on really being open. And even at that time, we had adult daughters, uh, you know, they were adults and um, my wife auto- automatically goes into DEFCON 5. So when she hears anything, I mean, she's been worried about me for six years now that with COVID, I'm not allowed out out of the house except, to, uh, you know, today I had a friend that I hadn't seen in three years. We ate outdoors. I, that was, I was okay. But she was really nervous. But I said to her on the way that I just want to alert the girls that, there could be something coming up, even though we don't know for sure, just like to tell them. So our one daughter lives two blocks from us. So I said, we'll just see if she's there and we'll pop in. And her expression was nothing. It was like totally numb, you know, and her guy was, you know, was there to help her. And she's the one that's more stoic, but I know that inside, So then we went over to the other one who worries about everything. And she, uh, this was the end of January and her wedding was planned for October 24th of that year. So when I said something to her, she immediately said, we're canceling the wedding and we'll do a bedside service. And I said, we're not canceling the wedding. I am going to be there and I have three goals. I'm going to walk you down the aisle. We're going to do the father-daughter dance, and I'm going to do the toast. So don't even think about anything else. So what happens, and I and I gathered this from talking to other people um, who were diagnosed or have been cancer patients, is that I was the calmest one in my family because I knew what we had to do. I was optimistic that it was caught really early, that I had the best doctor, and that I, you know, my 
my sense when it comes to things like this is to be optimistic, not pessimistic, that, that things were going to work out, that I was going to be there. And, uh, but the family was a, a, a total basket case. Uh, so the one, <laughs> the one advantage in the way that this worked out was how fast we went from diagnosis to surgery, which was under a month. And if there hadn't been for a snowstorm in New York, it would have been in three weeks. Um, <laughs> but when I saw Dr. Kappa, he said, you know, I think that we, we should do the Whipple surgery. And I said, okay. And he said, we're not going to know till we go in uh, and biopsy uh, the tumor as to whether or not it is malignant. Right. So I said, okay, um, you know, I uh, am all for doing whatever my doctors tell me to do. And when you ask me for my piece of advice, that's one of them. Listen to your doctor. Don't be afraid to go to the doctor. With COVID, I think so many people aren't going for their regular checkups now uh, that it's terrible. For people who, uh, who don't know what it is, can you explain what the Whipple is? Okay, so Whipple surgery uh, was invented, and I found all of this out after I got it, because as I said, (laughs) I knew nothing about pancreatic cancer, zero. For a smart person, I thought I was pretty dumb for the things I did getting ready. So the Whipple surgery was developed by uh, Dr. Alan Whipple, and it uh, was started to be used in the 1960s. And it was when it was first used, um, the mortality rate was greater than 50% surviving the surgery, just getting off the table. So even though the five-year survival rate for pancreatic cancer is still well under 10%, the survival rate of the surgery is 90%. So at least we've, you know, we've come far uh, with that. And it's about an eight and a half hour procedure without getting too gory. Um, The doctor actually takes virtually all of your organs out, puts them on a table, keeps some of them, like the gallbladder and the spleen. And when he's finished with the surgery, kind of rearranges where they are. And so he had told me that going in, he was going to, uh, the Whipple included moving things around, removing virtually all of the pancreas, and that uh, also uh, removing one third of the stomach just to be safe. So I said, okay, whatever we have to do. He was great because he saw us before the surgery. He told my family that he would come by halfway through and give them an update and that he would see them again when it was over. And he did all of those things. Um, I cracked my one joke, which no one laughed at, which was, the surgery is actually going to be the one part of this whole experience that's better for me than you because I'll be unconscious. Nobody laughed at that. Was, I think it's very funny. They, they were too uh, depressed. When I woke up, he had already talked to my family. He did what he said midway through. He did it afterwards. And then when I came out of uh, the anesthesia, and I was still really groggy, so I'd ask my wife afterwards, what did he say to me? But he had said that the surgery was great because it was early. He was able to get all the cancer out. And they have, this is another term they use, which is clearing the margin, which means that it was in, was in the margin of the pancreas. It had not spread anywhere else, and particularly the lymph nodes. The bad news 
was because he wanted to be sure is that he saw something in the middle of the stomach. So we decided to take that out too. So I have one third of my stomach and have it, and have it biopsied afterwards. Because he said, even whether it was or it wasn't, if it was cancerous, the last thing he would want to do is to put me through surgery again and anesthesia. Right. So the PS is that it turned out that that one was negative. But I 110% support him having done that because better safe than sorry. It's just made my life more interesting. But as you can see, I'm not depressed. You know, I like Lou Gehrig when he was at Yankee Stadium after he, when he was dying of uh, ALS said, I am the luckiest man in the world. And that's the way I feel every day because I'm here at this time when, you know, 90% plus of people don't make it. Those that are not, not diagnosed early enough to have surgery, uh, the mortality is usually within six months. Yeah. So I do consider no matter what, that every day is a great day for me. Oh God, I love your spirit. Like it's making me just tear up and I just, I love your spirit so much. Um, after the surgery, um, did you have to do any other treatment? And if so, what was it? Okay, well, after the surgery, I was in the hospital for nine days. I was on a feeding tube for probably about the first six. And I, again, without getting too gross, I had these really terrible, uh, bags that took out uh, um, excess urine and pus and whatever. Um, and then I went to light food and I was able to go home after nine days. We went home in a blizzard. So that made my wife even more nervous. And then I didn't realize how tired I was because when I got in the door and we live in a splanch, which means walking up multiple levels, we got up to the bed and I just basically bounced on the bed and she took over from there. Um, but what they had told me is that it was my choice, but that it was recommended that I do chemo and that uh, I needed to wait roughly a month to be able to get back my strength to be able to deal with the chemo. Uh, so the only part of the process in terms of picking doctors that bothered me was this particular step. And the first doctor that I was referred to talked about the fact <clears throat> that I, that an I in all likelihood wasn't going to make it past the six months. And about I'm, a, I'm a couple of things. One, because I'm an empirical guy and I've done research my whole life. I say to him, based upon what? And he said, well, there was a study done uh, in 1986 that involved, you know, 50 people and it's the fin definitive study. And I said, there is no definitive study because there were so few people like me that you don't know what's going to happen with me. Right. So he had it. So I wasn't even going to make it to my daughter's wedding. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I said something to him because I'm not a quiet person. And I said, why would you tell me this? I went through the surgery. The surgeon, this top notch guy says, I'm going to probably have a normal lifespan. And you're telling us, I'm just going at the data and I want to be truthful and realistic. So that was the end of him. So I'm going to stop for just a second again. So people yeah. understand. So you, you had the surgery, had a great surgeon, the best at this point for the chemo. I'm searching for an oncologist. Exactly. Okay. So I love, I just want to point out, listen to what Joel's saying. He basically, you fired your oncologist, the first one. 
I didn't hire him. Didn't he hire him. To okay. the point that he was. But this is another piece of advice that I yes. know you, you want to say for the end. But the advice is, this is 2020. You need to work with a doctor that considers you to be an adult and talks to you. And don't be sucked in with, this guy's get big credentials, and he tells me to do this, and you don't ask questions. That's terrible. Dr. Kappa is a big deal. I talk to him all the time. He never acted as if, you know, he was, you know, up here. And that's the way all of my doctors ended up being. So I love the whole team. But this one, you know, you can't be, this is part, I think, what put, puts people off is they get afraid from seeing the doctor because they think the doctor may be too judgmental instead yes. of trying to be helpful and understand that most of their patients are relatively intelligent, not the other way around. I, I know many doctors, like the one you're describing, who may, in fact, be actually very good at what they do, but their bedside manner is just atrocious. Well, that's to me, there are two criteria to pick a doctor. One, they're a great doctor. Two, they understand patient relations. So how did and, you find the right oncologist? Tell people, since you are a, a research guy, tell people what your process was, especially after having okay, that Okay, so experience. now we, we made an appointment with... Um, I'll just, because since we didn't end up there, with another top three hospital group. And I had done some reading, too much reading, but I knew that I wanted to get a, a drug combination. I didn't just want to have one drug, even though the odds were 95% effective for the one chemo drug. I wanted, there was a, a, a three drug treatment and I wanted that. The big name hospital wasn't doing that. So then I said, okay, I'm going to go to my go-to guy who helps me with everything, Joe Tirana, my endocrinologist. And he recommended somebody that turned out to be terrific. The credentials aren't on paper, the same level credentials. His credentials in terms of being a doctor, heading associations, now heading a large oncology practice, he was phenomenal. And what he said to me is, I can't promise you anything. What I can tell you is that we're going to work as hard as you do to make sure you live as well as possible for as long as possible. And Linda and I both said, walking out of there, this is the guy. We started out, it was, uh, this is Dr. Viserka, so I'll give him a shout out. To him. <laughs> uh, so we started in uh, March. And what they had told me, because, you know, you do have to listen to them is that one of the drugs can have side effects in some people, and it could be splitting of the skin on the fingers, throwing up, all kinds of, you know, not fun stuff. So just be aware that could happen. And you know that if I'm telling you this, that that's what happened to me. So it was brutal. So I was on that one for only, you know, a week or 10 days. And they had told me before, they gave me literature, they had me read everything, they had me sign off, but I was determined I wanted to at least try. Uh, so we were off it after two weeks. And what he said to me, look, I know you really set on these three, but the two you're on are great and everything's going to be fine. You know, the chemo was an interesting experience, as I'm sure it is for most people who go through it. Um, it was a brutal six months. Um, so uh, in addition to the normal things that I guess 
you know, the nausea, the diarrhea, all of that stuff. I also had uh, low white blood cell counts a, a few times, and I would have to go there <clears throat> to have a shot three days in a row. That was for the white blood cells. And for the um, iron, I would have to have an infusion, and I had a couple of those. Now, because again, I, I, I tried to to not make things overly melodramatic. And I was happy to be able to do everything. So I think the audience will appreciate this story. So one of the time, and early on, I had lost a lot of weight. I looked terrible. I looked like a skeleton. Um, how, much weight, doing, how much weight are we talking and how tall uh, are you? Maybe 60 pounds, 70 oh, pounds. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, a lot, a lot. Wow, okay. So um, I had been doing a lot of interviews for uh, cable news channels. And one in particular... Um, I would do a weekly five-minute spot on, relating to some area of consumer tips. And what they would do is they would come to my house and they would set up and we do five clips. And even though the, the clip was five minutes, it usually took three or four hours. Between the setups, the person who was doing the interviews had to change outfits for every one of them. So, uh, so we did those. So she had called me and said, can we do some clips on such and such day? I think it was a Monday. And I said, sure. So um, it turned out that that, was, that Monday was one of the days I was going back and forth 35 miles to do the thing for my, my blood cell count being low. And I decided I wasn't going to cancel it. I made, the, I made the appointment to get you know, the, uh, the, the medication as early as possible, then ran home put on a jacket and tie uh, so I could be ready to go. And somehow or another, I did, and on five different topics, I did five TV interviews of five minutes each that took three or four hours because of all the setups. And since she was de <laughs> determined to change her outfit for every bit, I said to her, I'm going to change my tie for every bit. Okay. And it came out and it is unbelievable. And you know what? I have trouble watching them because I'm so skinny, you know, really? so you look at, you know, you, you, you look at, at my daughter's wedding. I, I had trouble looking at myself because I was so skinny and everybody was so thrilled to see me. Oh, I'm sure. I actually, you know, at the, at the top, when you said to your daughter that you were going to make her wedding, that you were going to do the father daughter dance, that you were going to walk her down the aisle. I just, that resonated with me so much because I think it makes a huge difference when patients have a goal, you know? And I always have goals. I have goals. You know, I was going to, after I had this, I was going to write my book. I was going to do a cancer blog, I, I go speaking, do volunteer work. I always have goals, but there's no question that this one was the driving goal for that period of time, which was brutal with the chemo. So the people watching or listening to this will like this story too, which is funny in retrospect, but not at so much at the time. I finished up chemo, <clears throat> I guess, um, two days before my daughter's bridal shower. So my wife and the female friends were, were over at a restaurant uh, doing the bridal shower, and all the guys were over at our house as we're getting ready to go. And we had a lunch at our house and I had something for lunch. I took my insulin and 
at that point, I still, even now though, transitioning from what was a type two diabetic, which was totally controllable. I could control the band like this mm -hmm. with medication and insulin to becoming totally insulin dependent and having the range go like this. So uh, what happened was I thought I, I ate a sandwich. I ate a cookie, which I wasn't supposed to eat. I started to sit down and I got dizzy. And that's the last thing I remember till I was in the hospital. And what happened is that I passed out. Oh. And I, they, I, I, because of the low blood sugar, they told me, and this is still to this day frightening to me. They told me that in the ambulance, I hit 29. So for your viewers, listeners that don't know what that means, you know, 95, 100, and 110 is normal. Uh, 75 is low. 50 is terrible. 29 is, again, thank God I'm still here. Blood pressure, so people know, right? Blood pressure. Yeah. Well, no, the sugar count. The oh, sugar, sugar count. count. Oh, sugar, sugar count. My oh. sugar, my glucose. My wow. glucose. So. Um, Why did it drop so rapidly? Because when you are emulating type one, which is what I am now, just it could take off for itself. And I must have, without realizing it, you know, acted as I had before and in effect taken too much insulin, mm, you know, that I, I was anticipating what time it was, what I was eating. And I wasn't in a routine yet of knowing. And, uh, oh God, that is scary. Yeah. So that's why he wants me to run a little high rather than a little low. So Hofstra is starting, uh, this was a, um, I had the sur I had the surge. No, I didn't have the surgery. I, I got out of the hospital. That was a Sunday. Hostra started Monday. I'm there for my first day of classes because I'm saying I had to miss the spring semester. And I promised myself that I was not going to miss any other time after the surgery until I retired. Zero. So I was there. So I'm there Monday. I'm there Wednesday. I'm there Wednesday. And my back starts killing me. So I get referred over to another thing that I never heard of called an interventional radiologist. Oh, yeah. And they took an x-ray of my vertebrae and they decided that there was a crack in there and he had to put two little slat. He put a balloon and then put two little pieces of cement in there to kind of even things out. Wait, wait, wait where, where did the crack come from though? Like from falling, from when I fell, <gasps> from when I fell. Oh my goodness. And I didn't realize it initially. Did you fall on concrete? What, I no, mean I must've fallen on my house, which would have just been a wood floor. But you know, it's just, wow. it's, it's the angle at which angle, you yeah. hit, you know? Oh my so, God. And this is another thing people can relate to who are listening or watching to this. And that is initially uh, what he was going to do was refused by the insurance company. And then, then I was on my university plan. It wasn't Medicare. Oh, yeah. Please he tell was us. on with them till 15 minutes before the procedure. And I'm not going to tell you this doctor's name because of the story I'm going to say. And he was arguing with the insurance company. And he finally said, look, this guy had pancreatic cancer. We removed tumors. We need to do this because I don't know if there's a tumor in there. Because they were saying it's just going to heal itself. It's just, you know, magic. It's going to heal itself. Yeah. 
But I was back. So that was, I forget what day that was. That was uh, like a Thursday. And I was back at hospital the following Monday. So, cause I was determined I wasn't going to miss anything. So I, what I did have to do between, you know, being weak from the pancreatic cancer and from the back is something that I have never done, which is to sit for the entire semester behind the podium. But that, that was also a blessing because I knew I needed to check my blood sugar more. So I had my meter in a spot on the podium that they couldn't see that I could pop myself in between. And the one or two times that it got down to 75 or 80, I was also prepared. I had my M&Ms, I had my apple juice. So it's just, it's a process of learning, which initially scares the heck out of you until you can, you know, figure out how things go. So we then, I guess the next major event is my daughter's wedding and everything went great. I didn't want to steal from her center of attention, but every time people saw me, they started crying. And when we did the toast and the father-daughter dance, it was unbelievable. But uh, the only, I had to make two concessions. One is I couldn't stand up during the ceremony. I had to sit down. After about an hour, an hour and a half or so, um, I had to go lie down for a half hour. And ironically, it wasn't from the pancreatic cancer. It's because of my back that I could only do so much. But then we hung in there till I think two o'clock in the morning. So that was Sunday. Wow. Uh, rested up and I'm back at Hofstra on Monday. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, well, I, I know, I, well, I can't even imagine, but I, I can picture how happy your daughter must have been um, to have. Yes. You. But while we were starting the do- father daughter dance, and we have a different recollection of this, <laughs> uh, she says to me, if you start crying, I'm going to start crying. And I said, if you start crying, I'm going to start crying. So she started crying. Then I started crying. And she says, I started crying first. I said, it doesn't <laughs> matter, but that, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree. Oh, gosh. I just, I love your spirit. Um, and you said you were going to add a little something else about the uh, interventional radiologist. Oh, just the, 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 the fact that he had a fight with the insurance company and in essence, not be totally truthful. But the part that's incredible is this is a guy that's gone for six or eight years, more training in his special field beyond his medical degree. And he's got to argue with the insurance doctor who was for the most part, a GP, a family doctor, an internist. How in the world can they fight with him? I know. But they did. Yeah. Yeah. What was the worst moment for you? during all of this? Oh, I have more stories even after, but the worst, the worst part, I guess, physically during the depths of uh, the chemo, psychologically, somehow I was able to keep myself up the entire period. There's one other chemo thing I'd like to mention. Oh, please do. And that is that the, um, the oncologist that I went to had several different configurations for infusion rooms. So they ranged from having about two chairs to having six or eight. And the ones with the two chairs would have TV sets and they were more private and everything. And my wife couldn't understand how I gravitated to the room of eight with no TV. And uh, I said to her, because we're there to reinforce each other. Nobody's there to give anybody a hard time. And we kind of inspire everybody, each other. So even though I haven't seen them since, I think about them. 
And we would always, because we were on pretty similar routines for six months. So we'd get to know each other. How's your family? How are you feeling? So it was really an uplifting thing, which I think my wife understands now, but it's it's hard to, um, there are some things that are hard to understand unless it is you. Sure, sure. And I've heard that from many other patients where that was the, the protocol for them, where they would actually go to a clinic and, he, and here's another story from that. And that is Dr. Viserka, the oncologist, convinced me that I should get a port so that the chemotherapy drugs would go through the port and they would just do a simple hookup every time I came in. And he said, it's a 15 minute procedure. I strongly recommend it. My philosophy, you recommend, I take that as an order. So I did it. But the number of people, even in this room of eight, that would come in who didn't do the port, either because they were scared of it or they hadn't been told enough about what it was that would have the injection through their arm. So that means every time they went this way, every time they went, they had to find the vein. And you know what? After a month, the vein dries up. So just watching that is just terrible. And I would say fewer people got the port than didn't. And it was no big deal. And what they had told me is that once I was three years into post-surgery, that if I wanted to have it removed, I could have it removed. So I had it removed just because I viewed that as another stage of accomplishment. Absolutely. I think you'll appreciate this story. So you probably know a little bit about my backstory with my sister. So I won't go into that. But my sister had a port. put in during, during her biopsy, Good. actually, it was put in very early Good. and, um, and it had a double, double lumen. So, and one for chemo, one for fluids. But uh, one time we were going in just for her regular labs, regular blood work. And this nurse walks in and she's about to prick my sister. My sister's already, already pulled out her, you know, <laughs> her port. And she, this nurse like, Oh, I don't know how to use that. I don't, I don't know how to do that. And I just look at this nurse. I'm like, huh? uh, find You're someone who nurse? does. You're an oncology nurse? Yeah. I was like, find someone who does. You're not going to stick her with a needle. And uh, it was one of those times where I remember because my sister smiled. You know, she was just, she didn't have to say a word. She just smiled. And yeah, yeah. I mean, she was a newer nurse, younger, you know, but still. Well, I would, after I was done, I would actually, you know, for a couple of years, I would always go back to the infusion room and see the, the nurses that were there when I was there. And I'd always thank them. And I'd say, I'm still here. So you've got a success case. Really? Oh, oh, I love that. I love that you went back. I believe that everybody should be treated well. And if people have been good to you, you should be good to them. And I think, you know, cause we're talking about pre COVID now in COVID, everybody thinks they're, you know, in favor of uh, first responders. But I think it's important to always tell people, thank you, you're the best. My um, endocrinologist, the one who saved my life by the early uh, diagnosis, um, he's a really modest guy. And I, after this was over, I got him a plaque with a clock in it that said, Dr. Tarana from the Evans family, the world's most compassionate and best doctor. He hangs it in his house because he's not somebody that goes public, right? Right. Aw, 
Well, what was your best moment during that time? Today. <laughs> My best moment is being here, you know, and, go, and, and getting to go through all the events that I've gone through. Uh, my daughter's wedding, getting to retire on my own terms, getting to go back and teach, um, having knee replacement surgery in January. So I'm out there every other day uh, at briskly walking three miles, um, being with my wife, who we're going to be married a long time in a couple of months, uh, my children, um, everything is a blessing. And I think that's the way, you know, I want to look at every day. And um, what is one thing that you wish you had known? the very, very beginning of your cancer journey, like day one, you'd wish you'd known? Uh, this is an interesting answer, but I, I guess to be smarter about the way that I looked for information, uh, because as somebody who's got multiple blogs and a YouTube channel and research and all this stuff, I like getting information. So what in, there were two things in particular that um, I was really just stupid, I think. So I went to these chat rooms that were for pancreatic uh, cancer. And they were almost uniformly down. Why is that? Because there were people who fell into the category of they couldn't have the surgery. And they were pretty miserable, but they were all down. There was no there was no support in it. Mm. Um, so I learned what you want to do is you go to the Mayo Clinic site, you go to Johns Hopkins, you go to them, you go to their blogs. And then the other thing that I did, which I do view in retrospect as the dumbest thing I have ever done in my life. And that is, I wanted to learn more about the Whipple surgery. So I went on to YouTube and lasted through about 10 minutes of watching a Whipple surgery. And I know you're <laughs> laughing, but trust me, if you want to watch the video, you won't be laughing. No, 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 I'm laughing, okay, because because I, I feel like we're kindred spirits because um, I, I had a hysterectomy last year. Finally, I, I did it after um, suffering from endometriosis for a very long time. And I, and I was, I put it off just because of fear, but I finally did it. I did the same thing. I went online. I knew the exact procedure and I watched the entire surgery. I mean, I kind of fast forward through it because um, I knew it was going to be, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. And I was like, what are they spending all that time on? How Once hard is it? Once they start putting organs on the table, I don't think you, one needs no. to much more than that. No, that sounds far worse. I don't think I would have lasted through that, but I did. And I, I was like, why am I doing this to myself? I don't need to be. And did it really this. benefit you in any way? It didn't no. benefit me. It just, you know, my God, I'm having this thing next week and this is what I'm watching. Yeah. Go watch a football game. <laughs> All right. One of my favorite questions to ask. I can't wait to hear your answer. <laughs> if you could only do one, I'm serious, one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? I think that everybody should be able to have access to affordable care. And that, and I know this sounds like a second thing, but related to that is that it, with this pre-existing condition stuff and even other surgeries, like the thing with my back that the insurance companies can't say no, that we have access and the access means something. Because if it wasn't for my doctor, in essence, fibbing or whatever you want to call it, I would be in an awful pain right now. This wasn't going to get better by itself. Yeah. There, there was enough of a break that he was initially planning 
I'm putting in uh, cement on one side of my back. He ended up doing it on both sides. Wow. Oh, gosh, that was awesome. Um, are you ready for these Thriver rapid fire questions? Oh, sure. All right. Beach, desert, or mountains? My backyard, but I'll, I'll, pick, <laughs> I'll pick a mountain because I'm not a beach person and I'm not a desert person. Okay. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? See, that's a tough one for me because I spent most of my adult life with the Beatles being it. But in my later years, it's the Rolling Stones and my wife laughs at me because I can write books with them on. And she says, how could you write? And I say, because it's background music. I don't even <laughs> pay attention. Okay. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? That's a tough question. I had thought about this. I think the song by Christina Aguilera, which is called Beautiful. <gasps> that's one of my favorite songs. Tough that to pick one, one, but I think that would be one. The other one, I'm going to sneak in the second one. Okay. Is Tug is Tug McGraw is Tim McGraw "Live Like You Were Dying"? And I know there are people that view it as a negative song. It isn't. It's inspirational. Yeah. It's saying, in essence, we have a certain amount of time here. Yeah. Live. Yeah. Yeah. So That's I cheated with two. <laughs> you rule breaker. What is the last meal you want to eat before you die? I guess a lobster dinner. Last person or people you want to see? My immediate family. And the last words you will speak? Please don't be too sad. Remember all the good times we've had together. And I'm always going to be in your hearts. You always have memories. So you haven't lost me. Oh, gosh, that's so beautiful. Um, aside from Cancer U, what is a resource that you recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I do want you to take this opportunity to tell us about your book and your website and everything that you've been doing. Okay, so I wrote a book that's called Surviving Cancer and Embracing Life, My Personal Journey. Uh, it's been downloaded about 12,000 times. It is available totally for free, free f-r-e-e -E hyphen ebooks one word dot net and if you type in joel evans you'll find it and the other thing that i'd like to mention is my uh my cancer blog which i've been doing uh for a couple of years now and that's called it's this is all one word surviving cancer embracing life.com and it's intended to be you know, some tips uh, that are related to health, but it's also intended uh, to be inspirational. So uh, before Ruth Bader Ginsburg had the second bout of pancreatic cancer that ultimately uh, resulted in her loss of life, uh, a couple of years before that, she was on David Letterman and they were doing her workout routine because even being under a hundred pounds, soaking wet, having multiple cancer things, she had a former Marine who was a trainer that they did a workout and she made fun of herself because she was wearing a shirt that said diva on it. And then she challenged uh, Stephen Colbert. Did I say Letterman? She challenged Stephen Colbert to do uh, the exercise uh, exercises with her. And then he starts to put on some rock music. And she said, I'm not doing exercises to rock music. Put on, you know, opera or something. Opera, yeah. <laughs> she, what an inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Very so nice. that's so that clip I have at my website too. If you go to the website, you can also 
if you click where it says book, you can download the book there also. Okay. We will so have it's links. PDF, it's free yeah. and it is intended to be uh, inspirational. I give a lot of resources within there, uh, links to various organizations and things. If someone wants to contact you personally, can they do that through your website? Uh, I have very simple email that I use for one of my 10 emails. Okay. It's Joel, J-O-E-L, prof, P-R-O-F, one word, Joel Prof, a professor, at hotmail.com. Okay. And I promise that if you correspond with me, I will uh, get back to you. I believe that those of us who are as blessed as I am don't just have a responsibility to give back. We are obligated to give back. And that's what this last phase of my life is all about. That's why I volunteer with United Cerebral Palsy. I work with the Lust Garden Foundation. That's why I'm doing this interview today. I must give back and help other people. And that is my sole mission in life. Thank you so much, Joel. Thank you. Thank you, really. I, Thank you. I appreciate you sharing your story today. And I wish you good health, too. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.